a word of prayer. We have just been singing that in Christ, the the cornerstone, the weak, are made strong. And Lord, as we reflect over the next few minutes upon the experience of really feeling weak, indeed of feeling that everything is collapsing around our heads, we may believe and trust and hope that you will and you do make the weak strong. So now speak to us, we pray, from your word, by and with your Holy Spirit. Amen. Things are going from bad to worse, muttered the teenager as he reflected first on the coffee stain he had just made on his parents' new carpet, and then on the results of pouring bleach all over it to try to sort it all out. Things are going from bad to worse as the two remaining supporters of the England football team said as they contemplated first their team's embarrassing display in the European Cup and then on the manager's equally embarrassing departure from his role. Things are going from bad to worse. Just before... Our service began, uh, Richard Cockaday, our organist, uh, who has been compiling for visitors to this church during the week um, a guide to uh, the various things that can be seen uh, uh, around the the church, pointed out to me uh, uh, the first stained glass window that was uh, ever put into the, the church, which some of you can see over there in the, what's it, the northern transept? Northern transept, thank you, Rick. Northern transept. Others of you can have a look at it later if you can't see it uh, now. It uh, was, um, just looking at Richard's notes, uh, Richard's notes here, it was, it's the earliest stained glass in the, in the church, and it was put there in 1864. And it commemorates the three daughters of this church's first rector, the Reverend George Charles Host. In January... 1864, one of his daughters contracted scarlet fever and died. Later that same month, a second daughter contracted scarlet fever and died. And later again that same month, the third daughter died of scarlet fever. A very poignant reminder of how, in potentially life-changing ways, a situation can go from bad to worse. And I guess we've all had days, weeks, months, or years like that, when we might be saying things are just going from bad to worse, whether it's something trivial, relatively trivial, like coffee stains, your parents may not think so, or something as poignant and life-changing as what that stained glass window commemorates 
I guess we, have probably, we probably know that experience of things going from bad to worse. Certainly, Moses and Aaron knew that experience of things going from bad to worse. Would you please make sure that you have a Bible open in front of you in the church Bible? The reading was uh, uh, on pages 61 and 62. It's Exodus chapter 5. And just look at how this situation unfolds and just goes from bad to worse. Exodus chapter 5 then. Well, the situation had been bad. The Israelites had moved uh, down to um, uh, Egypt and there found a home and safety. But as they increased in numbers, as we, reach, uh, as we read in chapter 1, as they increased in numbers, uh, the pharaoh of the time saw them as an increasing threat and made them slaves, made them work hard. So the situation was bad. The Israelites were in a bad place. Moses, God's man to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses had already failed once in that task and found himself spurned both by the Egyptians who had raised him, remember that story, and also spurned by his own people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. So Moses had had to flee to Midian and there settle down and nurse his wounds and think, what next then? But things having been bad, both for the Hebrews and for Moses, were beginning to look up. In chapter 3, you may recall, the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, reveals himself, reveals his name uh, to Moses. The Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, and the Lord tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh. And the Lord also says what the result will be when he goes to Pharaoh. That's all in chapter 3 and verses 18 and following. Moses has a whole range of objections to God's plan. Patiently, the Lord answers each of Moses' objections. And so Moses finally, uh, oh, and, and gives Moses signs, a staff that's capable of turning into a snake, and so on. So Moses finally returns to Egypt, and there he teams up with Aaron, his older brother. Moses performed the signs, the miracles, the miraculous signs <coughs> before the people. And we're now well into chapter 4. Moses performs the miraculous signs before the people. And when the people heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So in that mood about now things are really going to work out on, now God is on our side, we have miracles on our side, we have each other, Moses and Aaron, everything is working well, now it's going to work. <coughs> in that mood of feeling buoyed up by all of this, Moses and, and Aaron strut into the presence of Pharaoh. Now we're at the beginning of chapter 5 at last. And they make this demand in verse 1. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. 
And you can uh, see Pharaoh's response to that. It's immediate and decisive. A festival? A festival? This is ancient Egypt, not Glastonbury. A festival? No. And anyway, who is the Lord? More seriously, much more seriously. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know him. This Yahweh, this Jehovah, this Lord. I mean, he probably heard of him, but he certainly didn't acknowledge him or recognize him as any kind of authority in this or any other matter. So the demand is made. A refusal is given. Verse 2. Verse 3 there's a revised demand. And you can kind of see here Moses and Aaron sort of saying, well, that didn't work very well, did it? What should we try next? Should we try groveling or something else? And they go back to Pharaoh and say, please let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. If you don't, he may punish us. <laughs> Again, you can read Pharaoh's mind as if I care if your God punishes you. No skin off my nose. Let him do that. The answer is still no. In verse 4 and 5. Get back to work. Go on, off you go. Out of my sight. And then uh, Pharaoh gives it a little bit more thought. He gathers the Egyptian slave masters and the Israelite uh, foreman together. And he says, uh, verses uh, um, 6 to 14, you know, I've been thinking about this matter of the Hebrews and wanting to go off uh, to the desert uh, and, and for a festival and so on. And it seems to me that if they have time to go off on a jolly, they have time to work a little harder. Don't you think? And uh, so Pharaoh is sticking to his guns. Well, why wouldn't he? He's in charge around here. The foreman, these are the Israelite foremen in charge of organizing the, um, uh, the Israelite uh, uh, workers. The foreman says, uh, say in verses 15 and 16, Pharaoh, you have made life impossible for us, or at least your taskmasters have. And Pharaoh once again rejects the appeal. Lazy, that's what you are, lazy. And you're gullible, believing all these lies that Moses and Aaron have been telling you. Well, that's the outline of the story. And uh, have you noticed the chain of blame that we find here? Pharaoh blames the Israelites. They're lazy and gullible, verse 17. The Israelites blame Moses and Aaron because they have made a bad situation worse, verses 20 and 21. And then Moses and Aaron blame the Lord, basically saying... This is a fine mess you've gotten us into. Verses 22 and 23. Things have been bad. They seem to be getting better. But in fact, they have gone from bad to worse. Or as we like to say in Norwich, they haven't got butter. They've got wasser. Who do you think is responsible for this mess? Now, it'd be easy for me to stand here and start apportioning blame. So here goes. Let's have a look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh needs to take a lot of blame. 
Because Pharaoh was guilty of pretended omnipotence. Pharaoh thought that he could do what he liked. Pharaoh thought that he was all-powerful. He had pretended omnipotence. I mean, in a way, you've got to admire Pharaoh. He ran a very, ran a very tight ship. As a, as a despot, he was very efficient. Um, yeah, he'd given them a home. They'd got secure jobs. I mean, not much pay, but secure jobs. Um, and uh, he even, did you know, he even holds, uh, uh, has an open door policy. I mean, did you notice, Moses and Aaron were able to go and see Pharaoh and, and, uh, and, uh, and make this demand. The Israelite foreman were able to go and see Pharaoh. I mean, you can't say Pharaoh than that, can you? My door is always open. Come to me with any concerns. I'm concerned about all my people. <laughs> Just what a despot would do. All this is in your own best interests. He ran a very tight ship. But Pharaoh, like so many powerful people, thought he could do anything. And that was his big mistake. And you know, it's not just totalitarian leaders. We might think of um, Kim Jong-un in North Korea as an example of a totalitarian leader. Not just people like that, but also those with an immense amount of power, many celebrities sports stars, yes, and even Christian leaders can, by virtue of their power, either see themselves or be seen by other people as invulnerable, all-powerful. I noticed something that um, Louis Thoreau said about Jimmy Savile. He said this about Savile. The message to his victims was, I'm a star. This is normal. I can do whatever I want. And then in that uh, notorious videotape that's emerged from 10 years ago of uh, Donald Trump, one of the things he says in that tape is, when you're a star, you can do anything. We really ought to be praying hard for anybody and everybody in a position of power. Because, as the old saying goes, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah, Pharaoh is, has to take responsibility in this matter because of his imagined omnipotence. The Israelites, we need to look at them. The Israelites, uh, the people, the Hebrews, were guilty themselves, and what they were guilty of was selective hearing. I mean, you've got to feel sorry for the Israelites, very sorry for them, especially the people themselves, the population themselves, who have no voice at all in this chapter. No voice at all, just like the oppressed all around the world. No voice. They had endured years of misery, and now they find that they've gone from the frying pan into the fire. But listen, Aaron had told the Israelite elders everything that the Lord has said to Moses. That's chapter 4 and verse 30. And the people had welcomed the good news, chapter 3 and verse 17. And the good news was, I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. Wow, there's a, a, a promise to hang on to. <coughs> 
but they had stuffed their fingers in their ears when it came to the not-so-good news. Record in chapter 3 and verse 18 and following, which was this. The, The king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So, says the Lord, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, after that, he will let you go. They had listened to the first bit, the promise, but not the second bit. It's not going to happen straight away. Brothers and sisters, we must uh, ourselves pay attention not only to the promises, but also to the warnings of Scripture. Our Lord himself said to his disciples before he departed this life, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. But not very long afterwards, he also said, In this world you will have trouble. And then he said, But take heart. I have overcome the world. So Pharaoh was guilty of imagined omnipotence. The Israelites were guilty of selective hearing. What about Moses and Aaron themselves? Had they done anything wrong? Well, for my next minute or two, I am indebted to a comment by the late Alec Mottier. Uh, Alec uh, Mottier died six or seven weeks ago at the ripe age of 91 or 92 a very faithful uh, Christian teacher, especially of the the Old Testament. And in his very helpful book on the book of Exodus, he points out some of the ways in which Moses and Aaron didn't really quite do what God had told them to do. So they were guilty of what we might call partial disobedience. They obeyed God in part, but not in whole. Quick bullet list of what they didn't do right. Um, looking back at chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. They didn't take the right people with them. They should have taken the Hebrew elders with them, but it appears that they didn't. They failed to say that God had actually appeared to Moses, the burning bush incident, but they didn't. They made the wrong request. Their opening gambit was too vague and too uh, ambitious. They added to the Lord's word by threatening plagues and slaughter against the Israelites themselves. Prompting the swans from Hebrew, uh, from Pharaoh, what do I care about that? And they too were guilty of selective hearing. They neglected the warning that Pharaoh would refuse at first and would harden his heart. And over, uh, only after nine warnings would the change happen and, uh, and the Israelites find freedom. Not until chapter 7 and verse 6 do we reach the turning point as far as Moses and Aaron's obedience is concerned, where we read, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. They do that, and God's plan starts to unfold. They didn't do that in chapter 5. Well now, to draw this to a close, it's one thing to work out who's at fault. Pharaoh, the Israelites, and and, uh, Moses and Aaron have to share responsibility for this uh, fiasco. One thing to know that is another thing to decide what's to be done about it. What are we to do when everything and everyone seems against us? When we ourselves may have made mistakes and not been fully obedient to God and his word? 
when God himself seems to have disappeared from the face of the planet. There is no direct word from God at all in this chapter. He doesn't speak at all. What do we do when all we have to fall back on to is God's promises? What do we do when all we have to fall back on is God's promises? And do you note the absurdity of what I've just said? All I've got is God's promises. Think of those promises and who made them. And never let us think again that all we've got is God's promises. Well, we can actually take a leaf out of uh, Aaron's and Moses' uh, book here. What do we need to do under these circumstances? Go back to God with your complaint. After his first failure, Moses had fled off to, to Midian. After this failure, he flees to God. Good for him. That's the, the right place to go. I mean, he complains to God. He has a good moan. And God doesn't complain back. You shouldn't complain against No, it's not as good and right and proper. The only natural thing to do, the only honest thing to do is say, God, if, if this is the way you treat your friends, there's no wonder you have so few. The Christian always has at least two advantages over the atheist. We have someone to thank, and also we have someone to complain to. And also, what are we to do under these circumstances? Don't quit. Don't quit now. It's Exodus 5 when things have gone from bad to worse, and God has not revealed his plan. But Exodus 6 is coming. I'm not going to steal Will's thunder by pointing you directly to Exodus chapter 6 and what happens next. I'm going to basically leave you with this cliffhanger about what's going to happen. But you can see it for yourself. And actually... I'm going to make you an offer. If you can come to me at the end of this service and quote to me the first eight words that God says to Moses and Aaron, I will give you a sweetie. To everyone who quotes me the first eight words that God says to Moses, a sweetie. If you don't like whatever they are, heroes, you can give it to one of the children or something. But why should the children always have the sweets? I don't understand that. Uh, there's one for everyone, um, until, until the box is empty. God is about to speak. Let us close by speaking back to God. Lord, your ways often mystify us, especially your timing. Why do you sort things out now? When we thought things were getting better, they get even worse. But your ways are wise and good and gracious. Your plans are built, constructed on a far larger scale than we can ask or think or imagine. May we trust in you and find that we too are among the weak made strong. Amen.